get uh, an indication here and we'll get started. Thanks for all coming this morning. Appreciate having you here. Are we good? According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. This hour we are in the book of Hebrews. Join me in Hebrews 13. We pick up where we left off a week ago. Thanks to technology, we have kept the teaching going, even though we've not been in the building. And we have made some progress through uh, chapter 13 at least. Philadelphia must continue and Philizenia must not be neglected. Verses 1 and 2 talking about the love of the brethren in Philadelphia and the love of strangers called hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers. They're both philos compounds. We're going to see another philos compound coming up here. In fact, last week we looked at the love of money connected to that. And uh, we'll pick it up from there. All right. Before we do get started, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father and His faithfulness to set aside our distractions to bless our time of study. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank You because You are so faithful. And as we are making adjustments, Father, returning back to the building and getting things up and running again and remembering how we used to do certain things and learning how to do new things we've never done before. In all these adjustments, Father, we thank you that we have grace towards one another, the relaxed mental attitude that comes by occupation with Christ. And I pray, Father, that we keep our eyes fixed on him, the author and perfecter of our faith. We don't allow ourselves to be distracted by looking at people or looking at problems Thank you for giving us the divine resources, all things necessary for life and godliness. And I would extend my prayer here as well, Father, not just for Austin Bible Church and our own circumstances, but for our entire nation. As uh, the United States reopens and uh, we learn new things and other things we've never done before. But Father, get us back up and running. Um, Continue to bless our nation. We thank you for being faithful. We thank you, Father, and we praise you now for this time in your word. We pray as we study from Hebrews 13 that you open our eyes to what is here and impress upon us not only what we need to know, but what we need to live. And I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so I'm just going to advance our slideshow to where I think we left off. (laughs) I believe um, I was preaching pretty hard about fornication last week, so uh, don't fornicate. All right, did we catch the drift on that? That, uh, that is pretty straightforward. Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. And it's, uh, this is a marvelous text, by the way. Uh, it's, it takes the whole Old Testament doctrine and distills it, everything from the law, everything from the, the Psalms and Proverbs related to human sexuality and the blessings we have for one man and one woman in the relationship of marriage. It's called the marriage bed. And so that is uh, an important thing to consider there as well. So let me pick up our slideshow here with verse 4. How about that? And hopefully this will work. Fornication and adultery have been destructive sins in every dispensation. Not just a church age text. 
And it's, uh, it was true for the Gentiles, true for Israel, true for the church. It's true in every dispensation. However, such sins have personal and geographic consequences. We know that. However, in the church, the sins are, are magnified. The consequences are more severe. You say, how could the consequences be more severe? Well, because the consequences are more than we usually give it credit for, and the consequences are greater than the world would ever consider, because there are personal consequences where the soul is defiled, and there are additional consequences whereby we understand even a land can be defiled. And so these these personal and geographic consequences are important to, to recognize. And then what happens when we, who are members of the body of Christ, uh, defile the body of Christ? What happens when we, um, who are supposed to be portraying Christ in the church, uh, we go and we take our members and we make them members of a harlot and we violate uh, the blessings we have to portray the truth of God's word in that capacity as well. So there's a lot in there. And there's a lot to, to uh, identify with when it comes to Hebrews 13, 4. Uh, marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. That there is accountability, and God himself personally is the avenger in these circumstances. So it's a significant issue, and it's so much bigger than just don't fornicate, all right? Because we portray Christ in the church. Our marriages are to be a picture of that purity, that beauty, that this is a part of what God has provided and not what uh, the world has perverted. And so we had uh, the issues there. All right, we moved on from the fornication verse to the greed verse, verse 5. Really, it's verses 5 and 6. Hebrews 13, verses 5 and 6. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. So there's a big clue right there that the failure to be content is, uh, is a money-loving problem. And uh, that uh, gets exposed for what it is in those circumstances. So make sure that your character is free from the love of money, being content with what you have. For he himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Isn't that a beautiful promise? You know, you would think that if, if, if I was going to write a verse talking about uh, don't love money and be content, I would probably uh, maybe include something like... Um, my God shall supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I might include um, a verse that, that deals with money uh, because it's a concept that deals with money. But see, the author of Hebrews here is so genius because he's talking about money, but he takes it beyond the financial realm and says what it really comes down to is your intimacy with Jesus Christ. I will never leave you nor forsake you. That the presence of Jesus in your Christian walk, the presence of God in your daily life is, is the, the promise that keeps us from loving money, that keeps us from worrying about what we will eat or what we will drink or the, the clothes we will wear. Our Father knows we need those things. And so the more we stay intimate with our Father and His faithful provision, the more we identify with, I will never leave you nor forsake you, we can, uh, we can have victory in a test such as this. So that we confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid, what will man do to me? We quote Psalm 118, but we put the emphasis on my, right? We, you know, the, the David wrote it, or whoever wrote it, wrote it, and he meant himself when he wrote the my in there. But we write our own name in there when we read it, when we recite it, when we confidently claim it. And so uh, we can say, the Lord is Pastor Bob Bolander's helper, right? Just plug your name in there. He is my helper, 
this verse just got very personal because I'm applying it for my circumstances. You know, and that's much better than, you know, the Lord is, was King David's helper 3,000 years ago. No, the Lord is my helper today. And this is uh, the great assurance that we have here in these promises. All right. So in verse 1, we had Philadelphia. Brotherly love. Let the love of the brethren continue. From Philos and Adelphos. And this is the love of the brethren. This is what we have in the body of Christ. Because we love Christ. And if, if you love Christ and your brother loves Christ, then you can have Philadelphia together, a rapport on that basis. So that's Philadelphia. Then we have Philizenia, the love of strangers. And uh, it's called hospitality in verse 2. So let, the, let Philadelphia continue and don't neglect Philizenia. Don't neglect hospitality. Now we have a compound with philos. It's a philos compound called philargoros, the love of money, and it's negated with an alpha in front of it, the alpha privative which negates the adjective that follows. So a-philargoros. Let your lifestyle be a-philargoros. Let your lifestyle be non-money loving. So don't have... It's, and you see, it's, it's kind of uh, verbose. It's a little bit uh, unwieldy maybe, um, let your it's probably simpler just to say make sure your character is free from the love of money but that's a lot of words for just the simple aphologaros okay and uh, not loving money this is what our lifestyle is supposed to be what our attitude is supposed to be free from this love and uh, we're accustomed to the term now it's only used here but we have the non-negated term the love of money which is the root of all sorts of evil we're told we have perspective on money in a variety of passages, and we can run through these really quickly. I think we did see uh, these last week. But you've probably slept since then, in case you don't remember. 1 Timothy 3.3, part of the qualifications for an elder uh, in the local church, for an overseer in the local church, the office of overseer, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from philagoros, from the love of money. And uh, because if the pastor is, or the wannabe pastor, the candidate uh, for pastor is uh, a money lover, uh, you don't want to call that man to be your pastor. The, uh, the money lover is going to be trouble if he ends up being your pastor because it's going to compromise his doctrine, his attitude, and all kinds of other damage in the church. And so having the requirement there is, is, uh, is good to know. All right, 1 Timothy 6.10. Philagurion, the love of money, is the root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. See, this is a perverted love. Love for money is a perverted love. Remember, the philos love is rapport love. And I mentioned you can have philos love for one another because we each have love for, for Jesus Christ. And so the basis of our rapport, the basis of our fellowship in philos love is that interaction one to another. You can't do that with money. Money will never love you back. If you try to philos love with money, that pile of money, it, it doesn't fellowship with you. It doesn't have the capacity. You see what I'm saying? It's a very perversion to try to, to, to phileo with love that they can't phileo with money that can't phileo you back. There's no, there's no rapport in that. And it, it almost puts you in that First Corinthians uh, concept of what fellowship hath, what concord has light with darkness. You can't serve God and mammon. And so the love of money uh, is, uh, is 
really uh, keeps you from loving the Lord your God. And I think that's why it's included in this context here. So it's the root of all sorts of evil and some by longing for it. Think about it when you're lovesick, when you're longing for something, the unreturned love, you've got a crush and they don't even know you exist and, and you just pine away and pine away and thinking, hmm, well, how long does that last? How long can you make that last? How long do you want to torture yourself with that kind of a thing? Because, uh, you know, you ought to just let it go. And particularly with, uh, with this, with the love of money, because they will never love you. That's 1 Timothy 6.10. 2 Timothy 3.2. Description of the end times and hello 21st century America. Realize this, in the last days difficult times will come. I believe we're here. We've been here for some time. Men will be lovers of self. Men will be lovers of self. And if there's anything that characterizes the postmodern worldview, it's self-love. We have, all, we have whole industries dedicated to loving yourself. And, uh, you know, shelves and shelves, aisles in the bookstore dedicated to uh, self-love. And uh, the self-esteem, uh, idolatry of self-esteem and all the rest. Men will be lovers of self, lovers of money. There it is. Item one and item two on the list of idols. Boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And uh, if ever there was a wealthy hedonistic culture, it's us. And uh, if, if we weren't so wealthy and hedonistic, uh, Facebook would have never launched, <laughs> all right? But here it is, and here we are, and we need to identify it for what it is, a form of godliness while denying its power. Finally, Luke sixteen fourteen. we understand this was characteristic of, I oh, don't do that, this is characteristic of the Pharisees. They were lovers of money. The Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. So unless you want to be pharisaical, Unless you want to be a Jesus scoffer, uh, you probably need to uh, pay heed to the command that says don't be a lover of money. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Love of money reflects a discontent, a disbelief in God's grace provision. When he says be content with what you have, that is is testimony to the fact that the love of money is in itself a discontent that you have turned to the wrong object for your fellowship, the wrong object for your philos love. And that if you were properly content with God and His grace, you would never turn to such a, uh, such a uh, provision. 1 Timothy 6.8 Just a couple verses earlier than we were just looking at. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. You know, the idea that we're properly oriented to what God has provided for us. There's um, false teachers and they're, they're money lovers. And they uh, were told here in verse 5, constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth. I love that tandem, depraved and deprived. Depraved mind and deprived of the truth. Who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. They view this whole church thing as a racket. And uh, they think, hey, we can make money with this. We can milk the guilty people. And they, can, and they can in the right venue. There are church traditions that will, that will twist guilt for as long as you're alive and longer. After you're dead, they'll twist, twist guilt in your family members. 
to keep the money coming in and uh, in different applications there, if you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, they suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Paul goes on to say godliness actually is a means of, of great gain on the eternal scale, in the spiritual realm, and when accompanied by contentment. The blessings we have of contentment, of sufficiency, of living one day at a time, walking with the Lord, at home with the Lord. Content. We have brought nothing into the world. We can take nothing, anything out of it either. I saw all four of my children born, and they were all born naked. And I'm pretty sure that's true of all human beings. Okay, That's, uh, that's the way it is. That's how we arrive. That's how we depart. We're taking nothing with us. And so let's have contentment while we're here. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content with those who want to get rich. Ask yourself, do you want to? (laughs) Why? You know, if God puts you there, thank Him for it and be faithful in that capacity. But I think very few can handle the prosperity test, which is why God doesn't hand it out too often. That uh, we, we walk with Him much better when we're so dependent upon Him the adversity test is hard enough. The prosperity test is, is even worse. And so wanting to get rich, do you want to put yourself under that capacity and that kind of accountability before the Lord? Well, you're going to fall into a temptation and a snare. And so the, the warnings are given there. All right. Finally, 2 Corinthians twelve nine. His grace is sufficient. You know, three times Paul requested the thorn in the flesh to be removed. And the first two times he got an answer he didn't like, so he asked a third time. And the third time the answer was, I suspect the same answer as the first two times, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I would rather boast about my weakness and the power of God may dwell in me. So, you know, think about this in the financial realm. You know, my grace is sufficient for you. Wherever he has you, whatever he supplied, this is his wisdom. This is his grace. And we can thank him for it. We want to walk content with our Savior, day by day, moment by moment. And what he supplies is perfect. No perfect gift. He doesn't, every perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. And so uh, if you want something you don't have and you want something that's not the perfect gift God has given you. So ask yourself, why do I want that? If God's not giving it, I don't want it. And uh, when he sees fit to provide it, however long that may take, I'll wait until he provides it. And in the meantime, I'll try to grow and be faithful and increase my capacity so I'm ready to handle the, uh, the provisions that he does make when it comes to that. The presence of Jesus Christ puts everything else in perspective. So we quote these verses, I will never leave you nor will I ever forsake you. We quote, the Lord is my helper, I will not be afraid. What will man do to me? We, we quote these verses, we claim these promises, we appropriate them personally to our own benefit. And then everything else is in perspective, including coronavirus, including whatever, okay, social distancing and all this other stuff. And uh, it's all under the sovereignty of God and Jesus Christ controls history. We can be thankful. Everything gets put in perspective when you have your eyes fixed on the Lord. This, by the way, was in a news story I read this morning and I was shocked. And actually it was kind of fun to read it. And it's, uh, the headline made me mad and then I uh, confessed and read the story. And, uh, but this, I don't, maybe you saw it, this was, uh, there was a professor at Harvard 
uh, I think a department head or something in the, in the uh, psychology department. So this Harvard psychiatrist, psychologist, whatever, this Harvard guy, he has observed that religious people have a different attitude than secular people. Yeah, newsflash, right? This is news, okay? But specifically with respect to the, the, the virus, the coronavirus and public health, living and dying. And he said this is a problem. That religious people who have an expectation of life after death, they aren't taking this virus as seriously as they need to take this virus. He says they are actually diminishing the value of life by this wishful belief in a life to come. Whereas the smarter people, the skeptics, the, the, the atheists, the secular, they have a higher view of life. He says it's higher. A higher view of life because they need this one. It's the only one they've got. They're not looking for the next life. And so they, they have more caution they're ready to, to stay locked down forever if they have to because their whole goal is stay alive at, 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 at all costs, no matter what. And it's these religious people saying, open up the churches, go back to your life, and, and, and there's more to life than just staying alive. And um, anyway, so the article, I mean, you can find it and, and read it for yourself. It's, it's curious to me that it was considered news for that secular people and religious people look at life differently. It's, it's, that's, not, that's not a newsflash. God wrote that in the Bible thousands of years ago. That we look at things the way God looks at things, which is not only temporal, but eternal. We fix our eyes on the things above. We set our attention on the things above. We look not at the things that are seen, but at the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal, the things that are unseen are eternal. So this is very much true, and I want to thank... Um, the New York Times or whatever newspaper that was this morning that I think I linked to it from Breitbart or somewhere that um, the, the, they provided a news story to illustrate my, my slide this morning that <laughs> we look at things differently. Thank God we do. Because if we looked at things the way everybody else looks at things, what's the point of even being saved? I mean, why bother? If, if attitudinally there's no difference between us and them, there needs to be a big difference between us and them. Because uh, we have eternal life. That makes all the difference in the world. And so I think when we see it here and claiming these promises or going back to Deuteronomy 31 and uh, claiming those promises and, uh, and, and realizing that it's personal for us today, it's not just, you know, uh, you go back to Deuteronomy, the end of Deuteronomy in the first part of Joshua, what do you have? You have Joshua, Moses is dying. Moses dies and Joshua takes command. And you talk about being intimidated. <laughs> How do you fill those shoes? You know, you imagine, you know, you know you're taking over, you know you're the new, the new leader of this nation, and the guy that, that you're following, he parted the Red Sea. <laughs> you know? He sent plagues on Pharaoh. I mean, all this stuff. You're following Moses. And, and so you can imagine being pretty intimidated with that. And, and so the, the admonition comes to, uh, to, um, to trust in God, that God will be with you. So Deuteronomy 31, be strong and courageous. 
Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For Yahweh, your Elohim, the Lord, your God, is the one who goes with you. Notice, it's that presence, it's the fellowship, it's the intimacy that we have. Why are you afraid of them? Yahweh is with you. Yahweh, your Elohim, is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Okay? Now, this has to be repeated a couple of times. So Moses called to Joshua and said to him, in the sight of all Israel, and scroll down here, he's going to repeat it. Be strong and courageous, for you shall go with this people into the land which the Lord has sworn to their fathers to give them, and you shall give it to them as an inheritance. That's, uh, that's quite an, an order. And the Lord is the one who goes ahead of you. He will be with you. He will not fail you nor forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And so uh, it gets repeated here, so it's reinforced. that Joshua has it twice, and the people also have it. They've got to know that they're, they're following Joshua. They're following the Lord. Their faith isn't in Moses. Their faith isn't in people. Their faith is in the Lord. Psalm 118 and verse 6. I said a few minutes ago this was a Davidic psalm, and then I started to second-guess myself. So I will look it up and double check. It's not labeled as a Davidic psalm. All right, Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. When does that run out? (laughs) When does he ever stop being chesed? The loving kindness never ends. He is good. His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the house of Aaron say his loving kindness is everlasting. Are you catching the drift on this? These things get repeated over and over and over again so we don't let go of them. We, we, it, we burn them into our minds. Let those who fear the Lord say His loving kindness is everlasting. It's why we don't want to lose our fear of the Lord. From my distress I called upon the Lord. The Lord answered me and set me on a large, in a large place. Now, if, I think this is Davidic, but if it's not, whoever the anonymous hymn writer is, it applies in his lifetime. It was undoubtedly quoted by Jesus and applicable in his lifetime as a messianic prophecy. Either way, we can bring it forward now to 2020 and plug your own name in there. The Lord is for me, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. What a provision. What a grace provision for us to have a perspective on even our enemies. On even our enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. And I hope we're clinging to this. And I hope we understand this. That uh, we're not looking for political solutions to current events and problems. Our faith is not in President Trump or Governor Abbott or or any politician, any human being. And we have preferences for those that we think are better and those that we think are not so so great. Those that have a a mindset that lines up with Scripture is ideal. But even so, even if we have a a marvelous leader whose mindset lines up with Scripture, our faith is still not in that human being. Not in man, not in princes. But in the fear of the Lord, we're trusting in God for for all things. And so we can appreciate that. The presence of Jesus Christ puts everything else in perspective. Now, I, for one, happen to be very happy that um, 
for, for example, our governor is a believer, and he is uh, solid in his biblical understanding. And I got to be part of a conference call with other pastors, and we prayed with, with the governor and for the governor. And he asked us for those prayers. And, uh, and so it was a big Zoom meeting with 500 pastors all over Texas. And, uh, and the governor had some things to say about the reopening of the state and encouragement for the churches and things that if we were concerned about mayors and uh, city and county hostility, uh, what was the, uh, you know, is the state going to be prepared to help us in that or what, how's that going to work? If the, if the governor says, go back to church and the mayor says, don't you dare, what do we do? And so um, it was really a blessing. And, and, and Governor Abbott was very uh, clear and very humble, and uh, when he, especially when he asked for our prayers and the, and the fellowship there, it was it was very nice. I'm looking forward to the next one when that happens. So, um, in any event, am I thankful for that? Yes, I'm thrilled to have a born again believer as a governor. Better than a, an unbeliever, right? Better than a you know a, someone that worships a false god. Okay, I wouldn't want that. But still, my faith is not in that human being. See far as that goes. All right. Let's, uh, let's talk about verse 7. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. One of my favorite verses in the whole Bible right here. Uh, remember those who led you. And, and the idea of remembering, okay, this is more than just, you know, try to, what was their name again? Thinking back. No, it's you're, it's not that you forgot them, okay? But biblically speaking, because God does this all the time. God remembers all kinds of things and he's omniscient. <laughs> he never forgets anything. But to remember is to be deliberately mindful. That is to place somebody in the forefront of your thinking and in a, in a be- beneficial way to be focused on them. So God remembered Israel and he delivered them out of Egypt. Or God remembered Noah, and he blessed him and brought him through the flood. Or God remembered Abraham. There's other phrases you can, you can find them where God remembers, and it's not that he's forgetful and that he had forgotten them at any time, but that at this on this occasion he chose to place them in the forefront of his thinking. So they get center stage. They get the forefront of the thinking. They get the primary um, occupation and dealings. And so this is what we're supposed to do with those who led us to not just, you know, remember their names, but to have them in the forefront of our thinking, because if they're still alive, we want to be praying for them. Chances are, you know, if they're like in the, the, the Ralph Braun category, they're, they're not just mid-80s anymore. They're starting to cross beyond the, mid, <laughs> the midpoint of the mid-80s to the upper 80s, all right? At, at a certain point, we say you're, you're pushing 90 when, you're, when it's within sight. We remember them, we're mindful of them, we're praying for them, we love them. And then we considering the result of their conduct, that not only are we thankful for the doctrine they taught us, but beyond that, the life that they led. And the testimony, for example, of Ralph and Dorothy, and, and, and this congregation knows it well. And it's kind of a... <clears throat> kind of a you know, emotional just to think of it because Dorothy passed away recently and she's now in glory and you think about the, the, the complete reward that she's enjoying <laughs> and, uh, and those things there. All right. So remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. Do you see how those are in tandem? They are parallel and they are inseparable. 
So if you're not teaching doctrine, you're not leading your flock. Can I say that again? If you're not teaching doctrine, you're not leading your flock. They are inseparable. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you. It's the primary function of leadership for the flock. The shepherd leads the flock, the flock forth. Otherwise, they just sit there. You've got to take them out of the fold. You've got to lead them to, to green pastures. You've got to lead them beside still waters. Psalm 23 kind of gives us this outline of what shepherds do. And it applies to local churches. Church leadership is primarily focused on communicating the Word of God. Now I say primarily because I don't say exclusively. There are elders who don't preach and teach. And we'll see that in a 1 Timothy 5 application. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, The elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So there are elders that do not preach and teach on a regular basis. That's fine. They're not called to that ministry. They don't fit in that way. But on that basis, they're not the primary leaders and they're not worthy of the double honor. Okay? Particularly if you're going to be you know, judicious about how you access the resources and who you support and so forth. If there's going to be one of the elders in your church that's taken out of the workplace and, and focused 100% on studying and teaching, you're going to prioritize first the one that's going to lead you, that's going to teach the Word of God to you, so that considering the result of their conduct, you can imitate their faith. So church leadership is primarily focused on communicating the Word of God. And these verses will probably, every one of them will probably be familiar to you. I, I suspect that perhaps um, none of these will be a newsflash. But um, I want to highlight them for what, what they say. And maybe even perhaps this class will become a resource down the road if uh, you know, you're trying to explain. Sometimes it's tough to explain to people that have never been exposed to doctrinal teaching before. You know, they don't know what they're missing. They don't know that it exists. They don't know that, that there are churches like this. And uh, to be able to just orient them to say, you know what, the main thing that we do when we come together is we study the Word of God. Because we're commanded to study the Word of God. This is how we feed. This is how we grow. All right, and so let's start with what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 24, verses 45 and 46. You know, I should at least flip my pages since I'm up here. This is, it's been so long since I've stood in the pulpit and had paper in front of me. Matthew 24, 45. I know, I talk way too fast and sometimes the flipping of the pages is the only thing that slows me down or sipping the coffee. All right. You ever think about this parable this way and, and the, the need for alertment uh, and being alert? Who then is the faithful and sensible slave and what's the master put him in charge of? Whom his master put in charge of his household to do what? To feed them. To give them their food at the proper time. The primary issue is feeding. Isn't that neat? And so, 10 months, do you 
So who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. When the trumpet sounds, I want to be a shepherd that's feeding my flock. And um, I just it's sad to me what our culture has. And there's a lot of shepherds that aren't feeding their flocks. They're entertaining them. Okay? And this, I'm not trying to be a basher. I know I... Sometimes people get upset, but I'm not bashing other churches or other ministries, okay? They answer to the Lord same as I do. But feed your flock, come on. Our nation needs well-fed sheep. So, blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. And uh, what a blessing to be feeding the flock, to be found so doing when he comes. All right, Acts 2.42. What were they devoted to? Well, prayer isn't the first item. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. Okay? Now, there's other items on the list, but if you don't start with teaching, how do you biblically do these other things? If your teaching is, is not priority number one, if it's considered an accessory to the ministry, that's a problem. It needs to be the main course. It needs to be the main dish. To fellowship. You know, are we going to front load the fellowship to where we have more fellowship time than teaching time? I think that would be a problem. I don't think that would be a New Testament church that Jesus Christ would be pleased with. And so, you know, if, if, uh, if you have... I don't mind having six potlucks a year, 12 potlucks a year, whatever. We thought 12 was a lot. We backed off to six, then we backed off to four. Or now we're somewhere between four and six, I think. Okay? And then a picnic, maybe. Every five years. <laughs> I don't know. We're overdue for a picnic. All right. But we're going to teach Bible class 250 times. How about that? Okay? So there's, there's the priority. There's what comes first. First things first. Prayer meetings. Anyway, we have teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread. I take that to be communion, but some people take that to be um, actual meals. And, uh, and prayer. All right? So we have 110 prayer meetings here every year. Not quite the same as 250 teaching sessions, but it's still a lot. And I'm glad we're doing it. In fact, more than that, if you count the lady prayer times, that I don't, I don't sneak into that. So, but notice teaching comes number one. X six two. This happened. Um, I love the way Acts chapter six begins. At this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose. So the first thing, if, if you ever, you know, this is like a, a manual for church growth. As, as the numbers increase, complaints will arise. And they're legitimate complaints, by the way. On the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows are being overlooked in the daily serving of food. That's, that's wrong. That's, that's a problem and it has to be dealt with. And so how does a local church handle problems, issues, complaints? 
Take it to spiritual leadership. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, it is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. It is not good. You know, think about the Lord saying, it's not good for the man to be alone. Here's the apostle saying, it is not good for spiritual leadership to have their teaching ministry distracted. Because we would be neglecting the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among yourselves, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. So it needs to be dealt with. It's just we're not the ones to deal with it. There will be other believers, gifted, able, with discernment, spiritual wisdom, and they can handle this, and they should handle this, and they're going to handle this. By the way, this is the the best way to solve problems, because notice they're coming to the spiritual leadership, and, and what are they saying? They're not shaking their fist and saying, do this, do this, do this, or do that. They're just presenting the issue and waiting for the leadership to propose the solution. So it's not rebellion against authority, not rebellion against leadership. In, in fact, it's submission to authority, submission to leadership. And when the disciples, when the, when the apostles said, okay, tell you what, we're going to invent deacons now, here you go. And this is really the birth of the, of the deacon office right here in this chapter. And the whole point of this, we may put in charge of this task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. The deacons can deacon so that the shepherds can shepherd. See? Now, this is still apostles. This is still early in the church, so it's apostles that are speaking, but it relates today with respect to the pastor-teacher and the, and the deacons. All right. And so the statement found approval with the whole congregation. That's the one verse in all of Scripture that gives us the mandate for church votes. Okay, But you'll notice it's a response. It's a response to the proposal of the leadership. And so it found approval. And we, I love the way we've, we phrase our Constitution, whereby every member has the privilege to voice their faith convictions. Do you, are you convicted that this is the will of God? And you say, yes, I share this conviction. Or you say, no, I do not share this conviction. And you're free to confess your conviction is unto the Lord. And so they choose these men, Stephen, Philip, and these other guys. They brought them before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. Now you'll notice, uh, this is not majority rules, and, and uh, the, the members get everything they want necessarily. We don't know. Because what if they had put forth a man that was not appropriate? Were the, epistle, were the apostles stuck taking somebody that was not good for the deacon office? No. So they nominated, they brought the candidates for, but you'll notice the, the appointment was still top-down. It was still delegated by the apostolic authority. After prayer. After prayer. Meaning it was really God's choice. So the word of God kept spreading and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. Again, part of our church growth model. Okay? The word of God kept on spreading. Keep feeding the flock. Keep teaching truth so that hungry believers can eat. And the number of disciples continued to increase. The priority is teaching. 
Acts 13.1. They were at Antioch. I love Antioch. And we've been reading some of this in church history and there were different uh, schools. There was the Alexandrian school. There was the Antioch school. Alexandrians actually, sadly, plunged into an allegorical method of interpretation for much of their uh, Bible study. But Antioch stayed literal. The literal grammatical historical me- method of interpretation, the Antioch school is the school we would have found harmony with. Austin Bible Church would have fit well in Antioch and Antiochian theology. They were at Antioch and the church that was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas. Now look at this. Prophets and teachers. Look how wealthy this congregation was. Look at the list of men. It's like a hall of fame. It's like a, you know, the New York Yankees murderers row lineup of sluggers. <laughs> okay. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manan, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Look at that. Look who's on the bottom of your playlist. The man that becomes the Apostle Paul. Isn't that amazing? So Barnabas is batting lead off and Saul is down there at the bottom. They were ministering to the Lord and fasting. The Holy Spirit says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And that's extraordinary too because that means that when taking Barnabas and Saul or Paul out of that local church, these other men were well qualified and capable to keep that flock going. They became, they stayed there. Okay? There's the nature of missionary work, the itinerant travels and ministry. It goes from place to place. And then there's the stay put, stay where you're planted kind of ministry. That's the one I like. <laughs> the stay where you're planted kind of ministry. And uh, these other men that are listed here, this is what they were doing. Prophets and teachers. We don't have any prophets anymore, but teachers should take center stage. This is the nature of the church age in the post-apostolic era. Prophets, of course, will only function in the apostolic era of the church. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. A couple of good verses. I've prepared these verses, by the way, when I... Uh, I've got a good series on this. In fact, I taught a weekend conference on this one time in Ukraine. They're great verses when I'm a visitor in somebody else's pulpit. I, uh, I go to, I taught this in Spokane once. I taught this in Corpus Christi. I've taught this in Ukraine. I've taught this in a lot of places. It's called pastoral appreciation. And it's, it's a little bit embarrassing to preach it to your own congregation in your own pulpit. So it's safer if you just go somewhere else. And then when you're done, the pastor of that church is so thankful that he invited you to to preach pastoral appreciation that maybe you get an invitation back. I taught this in Kansas City one time. Anyway, Ralph always told me, he says, just tuck some notes in the back of your Bible so that you have something available in case you have to stand up and preach. And this uh, This is a good thing to go with. All right. We request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. Now, the verb there to appreciate is actually oida, that you know them. We ask that you know them. The best way to appreciate them is to know them. They diligently labor among you. They have charge over you in the Lord. 
In other words, they're accountable to Jesus Christ for how they're shepherding you, how they're feeding you. It's not that they're tyrants or they have authority and they stomp their feet and they clench their fist. It's they have charge over you. You have been appointed to their charge that they answer to Jesus Christ for that charge. You understand the nature of a charge? You know, you're accountable for the charges, okay? You use that credit card too many times and the charges uh, show back up and say, hello, who made these charges? Who's paying for these? So if it's accounted to your charge, as uh, the sheep are, then you answer to Jesus Christ for how you're leading them and how you're feeding them and everything. So they diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction. And there's a nice uh, admonition principle there where they put it on your mind. They place it on your mind. And esteem them very highly in love because they deserve it. No, that's not what it says. (laughs) I think I misread that. Esteem them very highly. First of all, in agape love, that tells you everything you need to know right there. Because agape love does not take into account the merit of the object. So it's like husbands love your wives, not because she's lovely, but because the character of Jesus Christ is one of sacrificial love. And so esteem your pastor in love, not because he deserves it, not because you can't help yourself. It says because of their work. You love them because their shepherding work shepherds your soul. And what a benefit that Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, has assigned an under-shepherd to tend your soul. So I thank God for that. And live in peace with one another. So this is the, uh, the pastoral appreciation section here of, of uh, 1 Thessalonians 5. And for the Thessalonians in particular, you can imagine how awkward this must have been. Paul was only there three weeks and had to leave town. And so you have a congregation of folks who were pretty much all saved at the same time. And then a couple of folks identified their spiritual gift. And then a couple of men are stepping up, or one man maybe was stepping up. And you might imagine that there would be a, a, an authority issue, or maybe a question, a subjectivity problem, like, well, who do you think you are? Because we just all got saved last week together at the same time. And, and now you're a pastor? How did this happen? Well, because there are gifts, there are ministries, and there are effects, and he distributes them as he wills. And we identify these things, and it's interesting. All right, let me get to 1 Timothy 4. I'm going to run out of time. 1 Timothy 4. Timothy's a young man. How young is he? Well, it's curious, because I don't know about you. Where, where do you date the writing of 1 Timothy? You put the dating of, was he writing 1 Timothy uh, before his imprisonment, after his imprisonment? Is it 61 BC, uh, AD, 62 AD? Let's be generous and say it was 63 AD. That's kind of too late. But if it was, uh, if it was let's just say 62 to be generous. And he picked up Timothy in 50. Had to have been 50. Could have been early 51 AD. Okay. The point is it's been minimum of 10 years, probably closer to 12 years that Timothy's been traveling with him. So how young is he? However young he is, He's 12 years older than he was when he first started. And all the seminary training that he had and the travels that he'd done with Paul and even the troubleshooting that he'd done because Paul sent him to Thessalonica, he sent him to Corinth, he sent him to, to Philippi, he sent him to a bunch of places. 
And then he left him in Ephesus to pastor the church that was at Ephesus. And calls him a young man. It says, until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. He doesn't say, make sure you set up a good singles ministry and make sure the music program is you know, up to snuff and you've got to have drums and a guitar to go with. The... He doesn't say, and there's none of that. Teaching. The public reading of Scripture and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through the prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. There is a... Of course, that doesn't happen these days. We don't have the charismatic gifts, but imagine how it was done in the first century. Take pains with these things. Be absorbed in them so that your progress will be evident to all. They're going to watch you grow up, and that's a good thing. Corpus Christi is watching Pastor Dan Craw grow up, and that's a good thing. Just like Bastrop is watching Pastor Cliff Beveridge grow up. And Austin Bible Church, watch me grow up. You're still watching. All right? Your progress will be evident to all. One of these days, he'll know what he's doing. Pay attention Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. See, notice, to yourself and to your teaching. Because it's that example that's going to be followed as well as the teaching. And if you're not paying attention to yourself, you just become a hypocrite, preaching one thing and living something else. You can't do that. The people have to follow both, your teaching and your example. So pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure salvation, not phase one, but phase two, the experience of deliverance from sin issues by the Word of God, both for yourself and for those who hear you. Isn't that beautiful? That's what it's about. All right, 1 Timothy 5.17, as I said, the elders who rule well considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. So they come first in the question of support. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing and the laborer is worthy of his wages. And this isn't something else that Austin Bible Church knows very well and does very well. For four years I was bivocational, working in the jail, working nights and pastoring during the day. I don't know when I was sleeping. And then uh, in uh, the summer of 99 is when the treasurer came and said, what do we need to pay you to get you away from the sheriff's department? It was a beautiful question. I loved it. I said, I don't know, but it's, I like that question. Let's pray about that. And it's, it's not much. It doesn't have to be. Living in the parsonage, they're paying the utilities. Life's pretty simple. All right. So the laborer is worthy of his wages. He shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. And then Y2K was coming up and everybody was getting weird. If you think people are weird now, (laughs) they are. They are weird now. But there was a different weirdness in 1999. That, oh, this Y2K and oh, all this stuff. And then what ended up happening on January 1st of 2000? Nothing was, yeah, yeah, right. And I had people in the sheriff's office saying, you sure you want to quit? You got to keep your job and you don't want to... Yeah, I'm doing what God wants me to do. 2 Timothy 4.2 Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Emil Schmidt preached that on my ordination night. And some of you saw that video. We played that video last October or last November. 
Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Here we are. As a culture. Does the bulk of churches today endure sound doctrine? Or do the bulk of churches today go the ear-tickling routine? There you go. See, I'm not saying it. I'm just asking questions. Just, that way I'm not bashing anything. You can answer it yourself. Do your own bashing. Sound doctrine or ear-tickling? What is the characteristic trait? Wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. See, rather than submit to the shepherd to whom you've been allotted, they get a shepherd of their choice. So they don't end up with a David, they end up with a Saul. And, uh, and they're thrilled. <laughs> All right. Not only the teaching, but the example. Faith imitation includes both words and deeds. I'm running out of time. We'll have to wrap this up. Faith imitation includes both words and deeds. 2 Timothy 2.2 2, The key verse for our training ministry. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses. That means we're involved with one another in the training. Entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Isn't that beautiful? And then 2 Timothy 3, 10 and 11. Now you followed my teaching. Notice this is also a list. It starts with a teaching. If there's no teaching, the rest of these items are going to be flawed. You follow my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings. Such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. When he mentions Lystra, we're talking about Timothy's hometown. This is where he grew up. This is where he saw Paul as a small boy and then a year later joined his team. What persecutions I endured and out of them all, the Lord rescued me. You talk about having your eyes open before you even enter ministry. Paul was stoned and dragged out of the city as if he was dead. Probably was dead. And then God put him back in physical life again. The next morning he gets up, goes back into the city. Think that has an impact on a young boy? Because a year later when Paul came back through town, he joined that team. Followed with him. How amazing is that? We follow uh, faith imitation includes both words and deeds. Father, I thank you for Hebrews. I thank you for teaching us these things. Open our eyes to the applications you would have for us. We thank you, Father, for this entire book. It's been a blessing for us these recent years. We're looking forward to uh, its conclusion. We're eager for the next study in Genesis. We're just so thankful, Father that uh, so long as you delay, we keep teaching, we keep studying, we keep growing. Thank you for being faithful, Father. We thank you and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.